everybody to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder and each week I'm joined by a special guest as we deconstruct that week's parasha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. And this week we are honored as we explore Noah to be joined by Professor Ronald Hendel, who is the Norma and Sam Dabby Professor of Hebrew Bible and Jewish Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. He holds a PhD from Harvard University in Biblical History and Northwest Semitic Philology, and is the author of many articles and books, including, of course, the Book of Genesis, a biography. Professor Hendel, it's wonderful to have you with us, and we do look forward to exploring Noah with you. My pleasure. So I know we wanted to really dive in to, right at the end, really, the story of the Tower of Babel. And it seems that the early stories in Genesis really introduce us to boundaries and how we live within boundaries. Do you see the Tower of Babel in this way? And what's the story really getting at? The story is doing a lot of different things, and it's operating on a lot of levels. So you just have to start somewhere and start pulling the threads and seeing where it takes you. With respect to boundaries, the part of what's going on in Genesis 1 through 11 is the building up of the boundaries and conditions and limitations and conditions of possibility of the present world. So you start with creation. And so when you organize a cosmos, not that many people have actually done this, but when you organize a cosmos, you have to build up boundaries. You have to create a distinction. When God creates the universe, he creates a distinction between light and darkness, between day and night, between up and down, between day one and day two. And so this is part of the process of building up any kind of organized system out of a primeval chaos or disorder. So the Tower of Babel story comes at the end of this sequence. A lot of boundaries have already been established. The distinctions between male and female, life and death, brother and brother, husband and wife, up and down, paradise versus the world we live in now. And the Tower of Babel takes us to a final step by having a kind of social universe described. Previously, it's mostly individuals. Now there are all of a sudden a lot of individuals. And so you have the creation of society. You have the first society, the people are all together. There's a very emphatic sense that the people are all one people with one language. And you have now the development from unity, from a social unity to a social diversity. So this is where you get the contrast from one people with one language in one place to many people with many languages in many places. So it's final step of creating the boundaries of the social world. And then there's all sorts of struggle and conflict and hubris and punishment and things that go along with that. But in a kind of global sense, it establishes those final 
boundaries and limitations that constrain the present world that we live in, the social world of humans. Does that make sense? So that that's really how it relates to what goes before and yes. really the yes. linkage as being the formation of society and and the importance of boundaries in relation to that as opposed to just individuals, which is what comes before. Yeah, and it also sets the stage for what comes next, because next you have an individual, Abraham, but he also develops and represents a social group, the people of Israel. And so you have this interrelation between individual and social groups that continue with the story of Abraham. And it focuses in on a single, on the history and adventures and misadventures of a single people. Let's maybe dwell a little bit further on the Tower of Babel itself. Many of our listeners will perhaps be familiar with the parallels that we know about in the flood narrative and that of ancient Near Eastern literature, the epic of Gilgamesh as an example. How is the Tower of Babel paralleled perhaps elsewhere? Good. Well, that's a good question. And with the Tower of Babel story, there there isn't a clear parallel or a clear kind of cognate or related story in the ancient Near East as we do have for the flood story. What we have are brief references to the fact that this God or that God creates many languages, but we don't really have a story of how languages and multiple peoples are created in the ancient Near East. What we do have is ancient Near Eastern realia, actual things, architecture, politics, and so forth, that illuminate the details of the story. For example, it's called the Tower of Babel, and there was a Tower of Babel. So there's a kind of reality that lies behind it that existed in the present world of the ancient Israelites. So Babylon, the city of Babylon, was the most famous city in the ancient world. It was glorious, magnificent, ancient. And in, yeah, I guess the closest parallel that you have is in the Babylonian creation story, the Enuma Elish, where toward the end, after Marduk creates and organizes the universe, and Marduk is now the king of the gods, he creates the city of Babylon and he for, for his temple to be built in. And so the gods then build his temple, which in Babylon is called Esangila, and they also build the ziggurat of that temple, which is called Atem and Anki. And so this is a background idea that the gods build the city and the tower of the city of Babylon for the glory of Marduk in the Babylonian creation story. Now, this isn't exactly parallel to the biblical story, because in the biblical story, it's people who build it. And God is offended by the fact that they build this. So there's a certain tension here. And I think to some degree, there's actually a kind of political critique that's going on in the biblical story, where if you look at the Yuma Elish, Babylon is the center of the world. And the Tower of Babylon is this, the ziggurat that kind of joins earth and heaven And at the top of the ziggurat in Babylon is the shrine, the temple to Marduk. And so Marduk kind of rules 
from the earth. He rules in heaven, but he also rules in earth on top of the and his temple on the top of the ziggurat. And so this is a cosmic center, a cosmic axis. Whereas the biblical story is criticizing the story of the building of the city and the Tower of Babel. And God then tells the people, scatters the people so that they won't complete it. So there's a kind of anti-Babylonian political critique going on here. And I think the the centrality of this of these ideas in Babylonian society show you the foil that the biblical story is oriented against. So it's not an a simple parallel like you have in the flood story, but it's a kind of point counterpoint that's going on in the story. So there's a lot of political subtext, anti-Babylonian and even anti-imperial subtext in the story. So maybe to dwell a little further on this, is it possible to discern some of the historical roots? Are you pointing to some history behind the story? Yeah, it's hard to see actual historical things, sort of operating in the realm of ideology, of mythological ideas, things like this Babylon being the first city which is shared in Israelite and in Mesopotamian traditions, and the temple tower being this kind of cosmic access of this central city. So it's an ideological conflict. There isn't really any historical kernel that you can point to that lies behind the Tower of Babel story. Now, some people have tried to argue that maybe there were certain times when temple or a ziggurat or a city were destroyed, a Babylonian city, let's say was destroyed, or maybe the one that was constructed and not completed, that somehow lies in the historical memory of the story. But it's hard to really connect those dots. These temples, ziggurats were destroyed in ancient warfare, but you can't really point to any particular one that lies behind this. I think the general concept that, you know, but let me add, when a city or a temple or something is destroyed, it's usually interpreted as the wrath of the, the God abandons his temple or is punishing the people. And this is the same idea you have with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by the Babylonians, that God abandoned the temple. You see this very strongly in the book of Ezekiel because he's angry at the people for their sins. So this is something you also find in the ancient Near East. But there's not a particular destruction of, let's say, the city of Babylon or of the temple tower or the ziggurat of Babylon that you can point to as being somehow remembered in this story. Almost like a revenge fantasy, destroying the city of Babylon and destroying the temple tower that is its iconographic center point or architectural center point. I know that some scholarship has argued that the Babel narrative perhaps replicates some of the dynamics of the Garden of Eden story. And I wonder how you see this and why you see this as perhaps important. So in the way that biblical scholars analyze these stories, there's two different strands in Genesis 1 through 11 that we call the J source and the P source. So the Tower of Babel story belongs to the J source, as does the Garden of Eden story. And so they are the beginning and the end 
of Genesis 1 through 11 in this J source. So as the beginning and the end, there's a kind of arc between the two of them, a kind of thematic arc. And there's a lot of ways, I think, in which this is the, yeah, the creation of the present world in this stratum of Genesis. In the Garden of Eden story, the conflict is when the people, when Adam and Eve disobey God, they disobey his command not to eat of the forbidden fruit in the garden, and they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which makes them like gods. It is a very strange concept. They actually, they violate God's command, but in so doing, they become more like gods than they were before. There's a lot of wonderful ambiguity in the story. The snake tells them, tells Eve, that if you eat of this fruit, you will become like gods, knowing good and evil. Now, you don't really trust the snake because he's a tricky guy, a tricky reptile. But then later in the story, God says, behold, you have become, they have become like gods, knowing good and evil. So God affirms that the snake was actually telling the truth at that point. So the people have become more than they had before. They were animals in the garden, and now they're more than that. They're like gods. And then God says, now therefore, lest he reach out his hand and eat from the other fruit, the fruit of the tree of life, and live forever, this is the reason that God expels them from the garden. So the idea is humans have become more like gods. They're infringing in some way on the divine domain. And the reason that God kicks them out of the garden is so that they don't infringe entirely. So if they eat the second fruit, they'll be immortal. And so now they'll be both knowledgeable and immortal, which essentially makes them gods. So the people are infringing, uh, are encroaching on this boundary. Here's this idea of boundary. This boundary between the human world and the divine world. And they're transforming themselves to become more divine and God expels them from this divine paradise, lest they become wholly divine. So this boundary between human and divine is being encroached and crossed over, but also reinforced by God expelling them from the garden. So henceforth, they, they're more than just animals, but they don't get to be like gods. In some ways, the Tower of Babel story repeats that theme but again, as I mentioned before, on the level of a whole society rather than individuals. So now it's people as a whole that are building the city and this tower. And the key flashing light that goes off is when they say they're building a tower with its top in heaven. So here, graphically or architecturally, they're encroaching on the divine world. They're building up from the human world where they are now. And they're trying to build something with this top in heaven, which encroaches on, that's where gods live. So this is a kind of social encroachment of all humans collectively onto the divine realm. And then it says, when God saw what they were doing and what they planned to do, he says, look, this is what people are intending. If this is what they want to do now, nothing will be beyond their reach. And so this is the 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 desire of humans to go above themselves, beyond themselves. And God then prevents that. He draws that boundary between the human world and the divine world more concretely by dividing and conquering. He divides the people from one, per, one 
human group, one society into many societies, from one language to many languages, so they can no longer communicate with each other, they can no longer implement these grand aspirations that they have, and they're just going to stay in the human world. So again, like the expulsion from the Garden of Eden, this action of God of scattering the people across the face of the earth has the effect of that boundary between the human world and the divine world that humans can no longer threaten. So they can't cross that boundary anymore. So in a way, there's a kind of collective transgression of this boundary between humans and gods that repeats another divine consequence of exile, like from the Garden of Eden. But this time it's a global exile over the whole face of the earth. Thank you for sharing this wonderful parallels. And maybe, and we did touch on this a little earlier, but just to perhaps think further, how do you see this as such an important prelude to what then comes next and the particular journey that we then encounter henceforth as we go forward into the rest Mm -hmm. of Genesis. This is the wonderful way in which the Tower of Babel story sets the stage for the story of Israel that comes next, starting with the the election of Abraham, God saying, lech lecha, go forth from your country. So you have the sense you have the table set, you have different peoples and different places, you have different boundaries between peoples. You have this kind of fraught relationship between humans and God, okay, in which there's a lot of tension and a lot of God having punished these people and putting down various curses on the land, curses in that operate in agricultural labor and childbirth and things like that. So there's a kind of gloomy or adversarial sense between humans and God, that the Tower of Babel story is last brick in that wall. With the call of Abraham, you have a kind of switch in that tone, where all of a sudden, uh, God tells Abraham, I will bless you, I will make your people a blessing, all the, peop- all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And I would emphasize this global sense of all the peoples of the earth. This is picking up from the Tower of Babel story where the location of all the peoples across the whole face of the earth has been established. Now, there's this sense that everything's going to be better, Okay, that, that blessing will start coming down and characterizing the relationship between gods and humans but channeled through Abraham and channeled through Israel. So the Tower of Babel story kind of sets the stage and puts out the silverware and the glasses and the cups and plates so that the tone of the story can change with this shift from the initial ordering of the whole world to the more precise or narrowed scope of the history of Israel. And, but then the blessings of all the peoples provides a kind of hinge between those two sections of the story. It's a good story. You can see there's a lot going on. Oh, absolutely. And perhaps finally, we've drawn on your wonderful scholarship. I wonder as a final question, what you make of what the story has to offer for us today? I have to say, 
that when I go downtown to San Francisco or New York or London, and I see all these big buildings, and you know what they call them? Skyscrapers. <laughs> I think of the Tower of Babel. <laughs> so there's a certain, and I think this is also going on in the story. There's a certain suspicion of civilization that you see in the story, that people have these great aspirations and they build these great things. And the story seems to suggest that there's a certain fragility behind them. And so I think that's something humans have this hubris. We try to create things that are beyond what we are. And many of those things are good. I think I'm going to get a vaccine for, for a COVID disease tomorrow, and I'm really glad that we can do stuff like that. But there's also a sense in which science and technology have a certain amount of hubris to them. And sometimes we create things that will that are fragile and will lead to our destruction. It's a little facile, but global warming is a nice example. It's a direct consequence of civilization, which we it's not designed that way, but we have this desire to build and create and make combustion engines and so forth. And there's sometimes consequences to these things, that they're not as, as pristine or as trouble-free as we might have hoped. So I, I think there is a lot in the Tower of Babel story that can really touch upon and cause us to think about the fragility of civilization and the consequences of human intentions and plans and activities that we might not really be conscious of. The limits of technology and yes. rain, raining us in. Exactly. And, and it's, sometimes it bites you right back. And actually, I was, I was thinking as you were describing seeing those skyscrapers in cities. And as it happens, we used to live of all places in Dubai, which of course has the world's tallest tower. Mm -hmm. I was suddenly thinking though that how funny it is that we read um, this story shortly after we've dwelt in our Sukkot and, and the, the contrast that has to offer. Yeah, so. a Sukkah is simpler, it's more primitive, but it can withstand an earthquake a little bit better. I live in San Francisco, there was a little tremor in San Jose today. A sukkah would do better than a skyscraper in a 7.0 earthquake. So you never know what's going to happen. What a wonderful note on which to end. <laughs> or terrifying. Or terrifying indeed. No, thank you so much for taking us through with all your scholarship and, uh, and also giving us important lessons for today as well. And do very much hope that, Professor Handel, you will join us again. Sure. Be very happy to do this. Is, as you can tell, I love this stuff and it's amazing stuff and it's good for people to be aware how cool it is. Look forward to speaking again. Okay. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, do find out all about our exciting content at jewishquest.org. And we look forward to meeting again next week for Lech Lecha.